It is truly a joy to be back with you. You know, our young people maybe don't understand that uh, when you and I get to assemble, we're privileged to assemble on the first day of the week in a country such as we have and worship God through these various acts of worship that he has designated that we are to engage in. Really doesn't get any better than that in this life. I realize there are a lot of other things that we do that we get joy from, but when the church assembles together, like-minded, devoted to God and His will, I'm just delighted to be here and thank you for your uh, presence here this morning. Will you turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew? What I'd like for us to do in this session and then in our Bible class session, a continuation, will be to uh, explore the question. What was Jesus really like? What do I mean by that? I do not mean what did he look like. We don't know what Jesus looked like. The Bible doesn't tell us. However, being uh, his physical body, being of Jewish genetics, uh, we know what uh, young Jewish men look like in the first century. They typically had facial hair. And their hair was short, unlike the medieval painters that have depicted him as kind of long-haired and kind of feminine-looking. And being a carpenter's son, no doubt he uh, was muscular and sun-tanned and the like. But that's not what I'm even talking about. What was Jesus like as a person? If you, if you could go back 2,000 years and step out into Palestine and spend a few days with Jesus, what was he like? Do you know how I think most Americans today would answer that question? I think they would say, well, he would have been a, a very tender, compassionate, loving individual. And they would be right about that. Although I would be suspicious of their definition of love. Because that's been skewed in American culture significantly. They would probably say today they would say, well, he would have been PC. He would have been politically correct. Jesus would not have uh, wanted to argue with people. He would not want to disagree. He would have been tolerant, very accepting of alternative viewpoints. A doctrine would not have been that big a thing with him because grace is more important than doctrine. How many of you remember a number of years ago when Ellen DeGeneres was on television late one night? It was uh, one of those evening uh, network news shows, and Diane Sawyer interviewed her. This was back when Ellen, you remember, this is at a point in our culture where uh, we're not, we weren't nearly as far gone as we are now, but she was coming out and announcing to the country and to the world uh, that she is a lesbian, and Diane Sawyer asked this question, which I was amazed that she would even ask the question, but she asked it. She said, you know, there's still a lot of people in this country that believe in God and the Bible. They would not be pleased with your lifestyle. What would you say to them? And in effect, she said, well, I think Jesus Christ was very loving and accepting, and I don't think he would have a problem with me. Do you realize that she capsuled and summarized the prevailing attitude that has blanketed American culture. It dominates Christendom and has significantly infiltrated even the Lord's church. 
people have come to perceive and conceptualize Christ kind of out of their own image. In fact, when one of our own brethren writes a book titled In the Grip of Grace, you know, you don't even have to open that book to know where he's coming from. That's a very Calvinistic concept that basically says, you know what, Jesus has you in his grip and there's not really anything you can do to get out of it. You can relax. He's not going to be nitpicky about every little detail of your life, how you live your life, doctrinal beliefs. You are in his grip. Well, when you read the New Testament, and specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which depicts for us Jesus in the flesh on earth, that is not the portrait you get. So what was he really like? Well, you're, you're going to have to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and pour over those with that perception in mind. What was he like? Let's do that. And, you know, we don't have time to do it in great detail, but in two sessions we can, I think, make a fair stab at it. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 3. Here's where Jesus, well, uh, before we get there, turn there, but think for just a moment. The first physical appearance of Jesus on the planet is in the form of, it, of an infant. Only Mark and Luke tell us about that. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke. Mark and John do not. But you can't really learn anything about Jesus there. He, he's, a, he's an infant. He's, he, he's not doing anything that the Bible records. So we have to move further down. And we come to uh, one other incident at the age of 12. Isn't that interesting? The Bible is completely silent about the life of Christ from infancy to age 12 and then from 12 to age 13. So in 30 years' time, other than his birth, we're told about one incident at the age of 12. By the way, that's one of the proofs of inspiration, the omissions of the Bible. See, this isn't biography here. Now, Luke is the one that tells us about that incident at age uh, 12. We just had it read to us in Luke chapter 2. He has been accidentally left behind by his family. They're in a traveling caravan with other people, making it understandable why he could be overlooked. Now, when they finally circle back two to three days later, where would you expect a 12-year-old to be in a big city? Maybe Six Flags over Jerusalem or something? I don't, I don't know, but, but the Bible tells us where he was. He is, it, he is in the center of of religious, he's right in the heart of religious activity in Judaism. He's in Jerusalem, he is in the temple, and he is engaging in oral discussions with the elite, the intelligentsia of Jewish thinking. These are the doctors of the law. Is that where you would expect a 12-year-old to be? And notice what uh, Luke 2.47 says. They were amazed. They were astonished at his understanding and his answers. All right, there's your first glimpse of what Jesus was really like. And that picture does not fit the popular conception. He's intellectual. He's spiritually minded. He's interested in sorting out scripture, discussing it. Of course, he was the author of it, but here he is at a tender age. He's not even a teenager. And he's focused on the Bible. 
Now already we, we have a tone set for us in our attempt to assess what was Jesus like. All right, the Bible's then silent till age 30. And in Matthew chapter 3, we're given really our second indication of what Jesus was like. You remember John the baptizer has come onto the scene for a few months prior to his appearance. He's doing the role assigned to him by God. He is the Elijah of the New Testament, Luke 1, 17. And Jesus presents himself. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse uh, 13. Jesus comes from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And what is John's reaction? He tries to stop this. He does not want to comply with Jesus' uh, request. And the reason he gives, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? By the way, what does that imply? Baptism is essential. Even John's baptism, which was a different baptism than the one to which you and I submit, but even it was for the remission of sins, as Mark 1, 4 states. Religious world dismissed this. Why would he say to Jesus, I, don't, I should be baptizing you. If anything, you need to baptize me. He's talking about his spiritual condition. Now, what does Jesus do with this point that John has made? He comes right back and says, you need to permit this to take place. Why? He gives a reason. To fulfill all righteousness. What's he talking about? Well, no doubt because God wants this done and we need to do what God tells us to do. But I think there's probably more going on here because in John chapter 1, John the baptizer explains that God had previously spoken to him and assigned him as one of his responsibilities to immerse the coming Messiah for a very specific reason. You remember that's given in John chapter 1? This was God's appointed means of identifying Christ for all of those who witnessed it and beyond. And you remember how that went down when he was immersed. The Spirit of God in the form of a dove appeared and a voice from heaven declared, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. So that was the reason for John to baptize him, to provide that defining moment of identifying Jesus' identity. So Jesus is coming back at John. John is saying, no, you know, I don't need to be doing this to you. Jesus says, yes, you do. And even though your baptism is for the remission of sins, and that doesn't apply to me, there is another reason why you must proceed with immersing me. Okay, there is your second glimpse of what Jesus was like. Again, cognitive, thinking. Do you realize that Christianity is first and foremost a religion of the mind that manifests itself in living? Absolutely. But do you not see that all other religion on the planet being false religion by definition, de-emphasizes the mind and thinking because truth, you see, is self-authenticating. And the human mind created by God in God's image, if you don't exercise your will against your natural ability to think straight, you'll come to the truth and you'll know the truth when you hear it. So why is there all this false religion in the world? 
it's because people don't want the truth and therefore they push out of their mind the evidence that would force them to draw the conclusion that there's truth and they go ahead and believe all this other stuff so that they can then live the way they want, do what they want, have what they want, be what they want. That's clearly what's going on according to Scripture. People are motivated by a number of fundamental human motivations that are illicit from pride and selfishness to a desire for fame and fortune. It's not that truth cannot be known. It's that people don't want the truth. You know, like Eve, there she was, she was in the garden. Do you think she knew that God existed? Well, of course she did. You're not an atheist. Well, did she not have access to the Word of God? No, he, he gave it to her. Well, you know, maybe we can't understand it. We can't all understand the Bible. Yes, we can, just as easily as Adam and Eve did. Well, then what was her problem? She saw the fruit. She wanted it. Now, that's what's plaguing all of us and the entire planet every day. It's not a, an inability to come to a knowledge of truth and to know it. It's that we have other motivations going on that are driving us and tempting us and testing us. So here is Jesus, and he is expressing specific doctrinal detail that must be complied with. Now, wait a minute. I, I thought Jesus would, would de-emphasize doctrine. You know, shouldn't he have said something to John like, well, John, you know, you're being too nitpicky here about doctrine. God's not that concerned about doctrinal detail. Oh, no. This is a specific action, and it must be performed. Now, turn the page to chapter 4, and here we have the third indication of what Jesus was really like. You remember the Holy Spirit takes him uh, into the desert to be tempted by Satan. He's there. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, which means he's been pushed to the very limits of human endurance. You can't go longer than that without food before a bone and tissue begins to break down. So he's hurting in the sense that he's physically uh, in a very dilapidated condition. And that's when Satan hits him, and the first thing he hits him with is food. And notice how Satan puts it. If you are the Son of God, by the way, the Greek construction there is not if in the sense of, I don't know whether you are or not. Well, Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. So maybe a better rendering would be since. Because you're the Son of God, why don't you uh, command that these stones be turned into bread? Now again, what would you expect Jesus? How would you expect Jesus to respond to that? Satan, you're like those uh, Church of Christ people. You're always arguing about things and wanting to fuss over doctrine and everything. We don't need to be doing that. We just need to accept each other, tolerate each other. We don't have to agree on everything. No, you remember Jesus immediately goes to Scripture. And as you well know, all three times he does this. It is written. The Bible says. You know, every single one of us is, is in a period in which we are going through our lives in anticipation of our death and eternity. And we are all in this period of testing, all of us, every one of us. And the question is, are we going to be able to make it? Well, we can. 
None of us will be able to stand before God at the end of time having not made it and say, well, here's the reasons. And they won't be justifiable. We can do this. We can make it. But the only way for you and me to make it, with everything that's coming at us, especially in America today, challenging our thinking, look what's happening to our children, what they're being exposed to that many of us and our grandparents were not exposed to. The only way for us to weather this turbulent, moral, spiritual storm that is sweeping across our land is to so fill our minds with God's thinking and accept it as our thinking that we are then able to face whatever comes at us. See, that's not merely one way to cope with temptation in your life. It's the only way. You know, if you experience some horrible event in your life, maybe a loved one dies tragically or something, and you maybe have some fleeting doubts flash through your mind, like, where was God? It helps when others gather around you and try to comfort you and encourage you. But that's not ultimately what's going to get you through that. It's going to be that you have so tied in to God's thinking and made it a part of your perspective that you're able to cope with that. That's the only way to do it. You have to have God's thinking so in your mind that you call it forward in order to specifically address whatever test or temptation you're facing. That's why our children desperately need to be taught God's word on these matters. So Jesus says, it is written. You remember what he quotes here. All three times he quotes from the Pentateuch, specifically Deuteronomy, the passage he quotes is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why did he quote that verse? He's just throwing verses out? You'd have to go back and look at the context and see. And the context is that you remember 40 years earlier, the Israelites had come out of Egypt and they bungled it. So they wandered aimlessly for 40 years. At the end of that period... Deuteronomy is presented, which means second law, that is the law of Moses given 40 years earlier, is restated to a whole new generation of young people that have grown up since their parents and grandparents have passed away. And that information is specifically designed to equip them to go in, establish their new nation, and then to perpetuate their national existence indefinitely into the future. And so over and over... God, through Moses, reminds them of the mistakes their parents and grandparents made. Why, why were, did they have to wander around? He says so that they would understand that you don't live by bread alone. Do you remember what that previous generation was concerned about? First, almost first words out of their mouth when they got out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, got out of there. What are we going to drink out here? This is desert. And they had an attitude about it. And so God miraculously caused water to gush out of a rock. They said, what are we going to eat with that attitude? See, that was the terms that the, uh, the inspired writer uses in, in our older versions, chide and strove. They strove with God. They chided him. They were putting him to the test in a negative way, as if to say, we're not sure you're going to be able to take care of us out here. Well, those people needed to learn that as you go through life, do you have to have food to eat? 
Yes. Do you have to have something to drink? Yes. But that's not what life is about. We don't live by food alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So why, the reason why he quoted that verse is in order to say to Satan, food is necessary and it's authorized by God. But there are higher, more noble, spiritual considerations beyond our mere physical needs and these must take precedence over our physical needs. Now that was hitting Satan right between the eyes with his argument. And notice that Satan doesn't care to debate that any further, so he jumps to a completely different point. Look what he says next. He takes him into the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and says, since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then, as you know, this time Satan himself quotes Scripture. By the way, stop and think about that. Satan must be right. He quoted Scripture. You ever watch any of these uh, televangelist type fellows on, te on TV? Every once in a while they'll quote some scripture. Which I'm sure to many in the audience gives them credibility. But just because a person can quote scripture doesn't mean that they're right. May I suggest to you that Satan probably knows the entire Bible. I doubt that he had a, you know, an Old Testament in his back pocket or something and pulled it out there and flipped over to Psalm 91. He's aware of God's words. He has facility with them. He can quote them. The question is, was he making an accurate biblical point? If you go back to Psalm 91 and look at the passage that he quoted, Psalm 91 is a psalm of protection that talks about how God will take care of his people. You know, that's the, the, the psalm that says... Uh, the sun will not strike you by day, the moon by night. Well, obviously that's figurative because we've all gotten suntans. What is the psalm saying? It's saying that God loves his people and he will care for us and help us even through hard times. But obviously that psalm was not intended to teach that you can go out here and just deliberately imperil your life. You know, what if you have the attitude, well, let's just see if God loves me, he's going to take care of me. And so you go out the door here and you climb up on top of the church building and then you just dive off on your head. You say, it's up to God to, to save me. Well, Psalm 91 doesn't teach that. Well, how do you know it doesn't teach that? Well, look what Jesus says. Again, it is written. He doesn't mean again based on the fact that he had quoted Deuteronomy in the previous debate. He means in addition to Psalm 91, the Bible also says, don't tempt the Lord your God. This is very sophisticated logical argumentation here. He is saying that that psalm of protection cannot mean that you can just go out here and put God to the test by stepping out in front of a speeding car because Deuteronomy says you're not to do that. So how do you fit those two passages together? God will protect us and take care of us, but you don't deliberately impair your life. That's how you fit them together. Do you know we engage in this kind of logical reasoning all the time with our religious neighbors? They'll say, you don't have to be baptized because John 3.16 says, just believe in Jesus, 
Romans 5, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's nothing there about baptism. What do we say to them? Ah, but again it is written, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Do you see what we're doing there? We're not trying to say, okay, you say believe, but I say baptized. No. You're saying believe. We're saying, well, the Bible tells us to believe and to repent and to confess our our, uh, confess Christ and then to be immersed. So you've got to take all that the Bible says on that subject. That's what Jesus was doing. Again, it is written, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy, in order to show Satan, you have misapplied, misinterpreted, and misrepresented that song. What a mind. What a mind. And notice Satan drops that right there. Let's, let's move to another subject. So for the third time, he takes him to an exceedingly high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse 9, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And notice how Jesus prefaces his uh, allusion to Scripture this time. He says, get away from me, Satan. Question, does that sound very Christ-like to you? There would be people say, oh, Jesus would never say that. You know, what if your child was at school and another child came up to your child and said, have you ever smoked marijuana? If you'll meet me after school today, I'll let you do it. Would you like for your child to say to that person, get away from me? Sure you would. Would that somehow be harsh or mean or unkind? No. Because Jesus said, see, we're learning about Jesus. We're becoming acquainted with what Jesus was really like. That's not the politically correct individual that people try to portray him as today. And notice then he, third, for the third time, quotes scripture. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. If you'll go back uh, to that passage in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, It says, you shall worship the Lord your God. Jesus is adding additional words and saying, and him only you shall serve. That is, there is no one on this planet or no thing like a tree or something that is to be the object of your worship. Only God, only deity. That's it. Now that passage states that explicitly. And so there's no further discussion on the matter. Not going to worship you, Satan, because the Bible's clear as to what we ought to be doing. And that did it. Satan fled. Satan left. Satan ceased tempting Jesus because God's thinking was put in his face. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When you and I are going through life, no matter what we face, If we'll dig into God's word, fill our hearts and minds with it, and use it as the buffer between us and what's coming at us, I'm telling you, he'll give up and go away. And we'll be able to withstand and survive. In our Bible class, I'd like for us to look at a few other incidents. But already, you you are getting, are you not, a very clear picture of what Jesus was like. Now, there are other attributes that we can look at about Jesus in the way he interacted with people, but already we are overwhelmed from the time he was a child 
with the extent to which his mind was intellectually focused on spiritual things. Now, that's not where most people are even in the religious world today. People want to gather in groups and wave their arms and do all kinds of touchy-feely emotional experience things and then claim that that's religion, that's spirituality, when it is not. The Bible doesn't define spirituality that way. And it's certainly not who Jesus was. So you and I need to ask ourselves the question, do I really want to be like Jesus? I don't know about you, but when I, when I look at incidents like this and get into the inner workings of how Jesus was operating on the earth, that, that causes me to admire and respect and love him more. And shame on us for misrepresenting who Jesus is, as much of the popular literature of our day does. But God has not left us rudderless. We we can go to Scripture and peer into the mind of God and see what Jesus on earth 2,000 years ago was actually like. Wow. He loves us dearly, and he wants us uh, to follow him and to love him and to be like him. So, Have you become a New Testament Christian the way he said to do it? You know, people will say, well, yeah, I've been baptized, but it wasn't for their mission of sins because Jesus was baptized and his wasn't for their mission of sins. You're right. Jesus was not baptized for their mission of sins. But everybody else has to be. His was very unique, and he himself said, allow this to take place. It's a very unique situation. Then when you move further into the New Testament after Jesus leaves the earth, he sends the Holy Spirit to literally launch Christianity. Did he not? There was no Christianity prior to that. Jesus was not a Christian. He was a Jewish uh, Messiah. Christianity did not commence on the earth until after Jesus left and returned to heaven. Isn't that something the denominational worlds missed that? And therefore, on the first occasion when the gospel was preached, Peter made it, he articulated very clearly the keys to the kingdom. These pricked Jews, pricked in their hearts. They were obviously believers at that point. We're told to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's not hard to grasp. And you work your way through the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, and you get a consistent portrait that that's how people access God's grace, God, Christ's blood and forgiveness. But most of Christendom is rejected. They don't accept it. Well, why? Well, there's a host of reasons. But none of them are excusable. Because the truth is not that difficult to grasp on that subject and a host of others. You and I must never be ashamed of that or to shirk our responsibility to point people to it. You know, you and I meet good, nice, friendly people every day. And yet they're lost. And 99% of them are disinterested probably. But there are those that aren't. And we need to love them enough to call their attention to these wonderful, wonderful truths that God has given us in his word. You know, we as Christians 
must continually revive our zest, our passion for pouring over God's word. It's our only hope. It's the only thing that will equip us to cope with life. And it's there, and it's powerful if we really want to delve into it. Maybe you need to become a Christian this morning. We would urge you to do so or to talk with those, study with those, to answer any questions that you may have along that line. May God help the rest of us as Christians to be faithful to him, to recognize our responsibilities, and above all, to portray to the people around us what Jesus was really like and urge them to humble themselves before him and to submit to his will. If you need to come, we urge you to do that as we stand and sing.